The horizon is wide and the highway is calling. That means it's time for another episode of American Roads Trip Talk. I'm your host, Gary Mance, with a welcome and an invitation to travel the byways and backroads of yesteryear, searching for America in every incomparable mile. Welcome, everybody. Glad to have you with us. This episode, as always, is brought to you by our good friends at Sabre. Did you know that there are 38,000 carjackings and 6 million car accidents occurring each year in the U.S.? Now you can protect yourself and your family with Sabre's new Safe Escape Automotive Tool, the only three-in-one car tool of its kind. The Safe Escape features a seatbelt cutter, a stainless steel glass breaker, and Sabre's Maximum Strength Pepper Gel. Protect yourself and your family with the new Safe Escape from Sabre. Available now on SabreRed.com. That's S-A-B-R-E-R-E-D.com. Use the offer code American Road and save 20% off your purchase. We are delighted to have you with us for another episode of Trip Talk, and I'm very happy to welcome for the second time a gentleman I have gotten to know over the phone, gotten to know by looking at his artwork, and he was kind enough to send me a copy of a wonderful book of photography with some great text to go along with it, a book called Country Stores in North Carolina. You want to talk about getting into a time machine in the form of your own car to go and visit country stores in North Carolina. You are going to go back so many decades and see the pride of heritage in North Carolina. Let's say hello to Tony Craig. Tony, we're so happy to have you with us again. Oh, thanks for having me back. I really do appreciate it. Welcome, welcome back to you, to my home. Well, this is a great thing that we're doing this. You know, Tony, you studied art at Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and the California Institute of the Arts. We'll have to talk about culture shock sometime. <laughs> You've also worked as an artist in the animation. I can imagine. You've also worked as an artist in the animation industry for 23 years on shows ranging from Tiny Toon Adventures and Animaniacs at Warner Brothers to serving as executive producer and director on The Lion King's Timon and Pumbaa, the 101 Dalmatians TV series, Mickey Mouse Works, House of Mouse, Lilo and Stitch, another TV series, two video sequels to Lilo and Stitch, and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. You moved to North Carolina, devoting more time to your own artwork. You also freelance on many current animation projects, including the Looney Tunes show and Curious George. By the way, everybody, Tony's latest animation assignments are on Exchange Student Zero and the upcoming Be Cool Scooby-Doo. Lots of stuff for the kiddies. Along the way, Tony worked with such greats as Chuck Jones, Gene Kelly, Bill Hanna and Joe Barbera, and Roy E. Disney. What a resume. Tony, we're proud to know you, and I'm especially delighted that you were kind enough to send me Country Stores in North Carolina what a beautiful book of photography with some history, the text, more the pictures than the text. You, you just laced it with enough text to give context to people who want to go and visit the American past in North Carolina. It's a wonderful book. Oh, thank you so very much. That definitely was a labor of love, something to do on the side outside of animation, and a good reason to get me back home from a, a break from the animation work. I would usually take a three-day holiday weekend and fly back home and rent a car and drive around and take pictures and just go down roads where I had no idea what I was going to find. But when I did find something, it was a real treasure. It's like a 
uh, archaeological dig in a way, finding these relics from the past. An archaeological dig, you know, I think that's the perfect phrase for it, Tony, because people in any state who value the heritage of the place they call home, whether it's city, county, state, region, many people love it, yes, they call it home, but it takes that select few to commit to preserving the heritage and even, even extending it into the next generation. That's a special breed of cat anywhere you look in America. Yeah, you're absolutely right. These people that uh, want to maintain a family country store and keep it open, uh, knowing nowadays that it's probably not the best business venture to get into, but they love it too much to let it go. Uh, I know there's a lot of competition from big box stores and, and other smaller ones moving out into the countryside, but once it managed to hang on to offer something that you can't get, at these uh, corporate stores, they offer you a person that remembers your name, will sit and talk with you for a while, a person that uh, has things that you might not be able to get at, you know, a different kind of store, such as bottled soft drinks or a hoop cheese sandwich that they make right there with a slice of bologna. So uh, you were mentioning in our last conversation about Mayberry, which yes. is Mount Airy, and I wanted to mention that in the last chapter of my book, there's a store called Pretty's Store in Danbury, North Carolina. Sorry for that noise. Uh, Danbury is just to the east of um, Mount Airy on Highway 89. It's the county seat of Stokes County, the county right next to Surrey County, which is where Mount Airy is. And my friend Jane Pretty Charleville runs the Pretty Store. It's been in her family for three generations now. Her grandparents started the business well, they didn't start the business. It was started in 1888 by the Hartman family. But her family purchased the store in 1929. And her grandmother kept many of people alive during the Great Depression just by extending credit to people that she knew were never going to be able to pay it back. But, you know, that's what they were there for, the community. And that's what these old country stores are all about. And these people are venerated accordingly, very justly so. It's true that you can have places that, uh, in certain areas, and I get that very strongly, it's almost eerie looking through your book of wonderful photographs, Tony, that there are places that are virtual ghost towns unto themselves. There are other places that are in a stage of, and I hope you give us a little explanation here, it's the first time I've encountered this phrase, arrested demise. And I thought, okay, I think I can grasp that. But as you as you write about these places, these country stores in North Carolina, there were a, a subset of all that you saw that were in a state of arrested demise. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I'll give you a, a great example of arrested demise, which is, uh, I don't know if arrested is the right word, but to me, arrested means stop. Um, if any of your listeners or you have been to Bodie Ghost Town, out in California, that is a, a state park of a ghost town that is in arrested demise. Basically, it's maintained, but they're not going to do anything to restore it. They're just going to keep it exactly as it was, and if something's in danger of falling in or breaking, they will fix it. So that's what I meant by arrested demise. It's a store where it belongs in a family. They don't want to run it anymore, but they don't want to shutter it either, so they keep it up 
but uh, it's not open for business. That's what I meant by arrested demise in the book. It's allowing history to take its course, natural history in a way, although this is man-made construction we're talking about. And you mentioned Bodhi. I haven't had the privilege, but I was in a relationship many years ago with a woman who actually had made that pilgrimage, if you will, to Bodhi. And she was astonished at how it was like time didn't exactly stand still, but this concept of arresting demise, there was no rush to tear it down, bulldoze it for new progress on the horizon. It was a matter of honoring the past while allowing it to age gracefully until Father Time takes it away. That's exactly right. And uh, I do believe that the people that own Knott's Berry Farm purchased Bodie Ghost Town before it turned into a state park with the intention of doing exactly that, keeping it around so that uh, it would not be developed, but the people could see what it was like. And essentially, it's as if everybody just locked their doors and walked away in the 1950s, which is actually what happened. And there it's represented in and of itself. It's not something that is a, a historical park or just like Pretty Store in North Carolina. It's still going. It's there serving its purpose in a natural way without having to be turned into a tourist destination per se. Not per se, but the good thing about where the store is located is that it's near Hanging Rock State Park, which is one of North Carolina's most visited state parks. The Moratok River, uh, Moratok Park is right there by the Dan River. There's kayaking, there's cookouts, there's barbecue, there's a restaurant on the river. So there's plenty to bring people to that area, and it's not too far from Winston-Salem either. If people want to get out of the city and go up to see this store and, and visit some of these attractions. Uh, so it kind of is a tourist attraction now. People are hiking the uh, North Carolina coast to the mountains trail, and Pretty Store is on the stop. And she has been posting on Facebook all the people that she's been meeting who stop in at Pretty Store for a bottled soft drink and a sandwich or a package of crackers, which we in the South call NABs. Which I yes. believe is from uh, Nabisco. It uh, got to the time that uh, any package of package crackers way back when was just called a package of nabs. Uh, so she's met lots of people who are hiking the trail. So it is a tourist attraction based on the Facebook page. Yes. Short for Nabisco, you anticipated my question. I'm going nabs. Oh, Nabisco. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> Yeah. That is fascinating stuff. Well, first of all, the thing that, that's heartening to me, Tony, is that if people are traveling by road, and this is a show and podcast that appeals to the road tripper and all of us, they can find these places by following a map or getting off the road or even having to ask for directions. These are not, or by no stretch, are they inaccessible? No, sir. No, sir. They are definitely not inaccessible. It may be a little bit out of the way, but there's a sign off the main road directing you back to it. And it's not a, well, how we say it here, it ain't an ugly drive, which means there's a lot of good scenery to see out there. The I way. have one, well, just before we take our break here, Tony, I just wanted to ask you, I don't know whether this is a rumor or if it's actually sort of a rule in North Carolina, but I was told many years ago that if you go to order ribs, you, let's say you want a rack of ribs, North Carolina style, if you happen to either not like coleslaw or you want it on the side, you'd better say something because, so I'm told, in North Carolina, if you order ribs and slaw, the slaw will be on top of the ribs. Is that so? Well, that's 
probably just a rumor. I've never run into that. Coleslaw is Good. a staple here. <laughs> it is uh, a, one of the more popular side dishes. It will come on the sandwich, not right. on the ribs, but on a sandwich. It definitely comes on the sandwich. So if you don't want it on your barbecue sandwich, you had better mention it ahead of time. If you don't want it on your shirt, you better <laughs> mention it ahead yeah, you of better time. Have a napkin. <laughs> Oh, man, that is great. We'll see you cleared up an issue there. That was a raging controversy in my uh, dietary life for years. I talked to people about it like it was a real thing statewide. I'm, I'm going to have to go and make amends now. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Tony, just give me a moment here. I, I want to uh, sell some product for Sabre, our wonderful sponsors. Then we're going to come back and we're going to switch topics to something near and dear to your heart. And a lot of people will be fascinated. So stick around for more of Trip Talk. In the meantime, a question from our sponsor, Sabre. Did you know that there are 38,000 carjackings and 6 million car accidents occurring each year in the U.S.? Now you can protect yourself and your family with Sabre's new Safe Escape Automotive Tool. Sabre, the number one pepper spray brand trusted by police worldwide, offers the only three-in-one car tool of its kind. The Safe Escape features a seatbelt cutter to slice through malfunctioning seatbelts in seconds. There is a stainless steel glass breaker for speedy escape and Sabre's maximum strength pepper gel with a range of up to 12 feet and 25 bursts per canister. That's one safety tool that helps you escape to safety after a serious accident and helps protect you against dangerous threats you may encounter while driving or walking to or from your vehicle. Now available at saberred.com. That's S-A-B-R-E-R-E-D.com. Use the offer code American Road to receive 20% off your purchase. Welcome back once again to American Roads Trip Talk. We are talking with Tony Craig. He's a magnificent photographer, artist. I would venture to say he is one of the most creative people you could ever meet. He is wide-ranging in his interests, and all of them are creative. I wanted to talk to you, Tony, and give you the opportunity to tell people about an event that is coming up very soon in Ocean City, Maryland. There is a place I would love to visit someday, my home state of Maryland. Born in Baltimore, never made it to Ocean City. And you tipped me off to something when we scheduled this interview. You said coming up is the 49th annual Ward World Championship Wildfowl Carving Competition and Art Festival. It's going to be at the Roland E. Powell Convention Center in Ocean City, Maryland, April 26, 27, and 28. Coming right up. Please tell us what people can expect if they make the trip out there. Well, what you will see are probably some of the finest decoys and decoy carvers in the world. It's always very inspirational for me to go up there. I'm When I moved down to this coastal area, I met several of the people here who participate and compete and have won. Uh, they carve some great decoys. And let me just describe a few of the types of decoys you can see. There's so many different kinds. In our area, we have what's called a core sound style, and that is a duck decoy carved from usually tupelo or white pine. Sometimes people use cork. But a core sound style decoy is carved and painted with barely any detail at all, just enough to match colors and have wide areas of a white spot for the wing because the purpose of it is to fool a duck to come flying down and think it's a safe place to land. So core sound style is very simple. No eyes, 
but the decoys can range from that all the way to some birds that look like you could just pick them up and have your fingers sink into the feathers. They are done so realistically, painted so realistically. These guys take the time to use wood burners and carve every barb into every single feather. Uh, the anatomy is absolutely dead-on correct, and the poses that they get, the, the birds preening their wings up in the air, all sorts of species, not just ducks. Any kind of bird is welcome to be displayed. Shorebirds, even fish carving. It's really something to see. I would urge everybody to go to wardmuseum.org and take a look, and maybe you can find some pictures of past decoy festivals because you will see some things that will just blow your mind if you're into that sort of thing. There is something there beyond anything I ever understood, Tony, about this idea of a decoy carving heritage. This goes deeper into history rather than being something that an artist may know how to do and do well. It turns out it's not only highly competitive, but there seems to be a confraternity of, of men and women who will employ the decoy carving heritage that has deep roots in American history. What can you tell us about that? Oh, I can tell you quite a bit. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of history of the Ward Brothers that, that show is uh, kind of named after. They have a museum called the Ward Museum in Salisbury, Maryland. Of course, the festival is in Ocean City because the museum couldn't accommodate that kind of a crowd. But the Ward Brothers were Stephen and Lemuel, and they were born the last half of the last decade of the 1800s. And uh, Basically, during the Great Depression, people had to eat, and to get those ducks to come down, you needed to make a decoy that could pull some birds down, and these guys would use whatever wood they could find, pieces of shipwreck, buoys, railroad ties, any kind of piece of wood or anything you could cobble together to make a useful decoy to hunt with is what they would do. Now, I think that the Ward Brothers are some of the most well-known in that area of your home state, which is called the Delmarva Peninsula from Delaware and Maryland, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And they got to where I think they just got bored and they're like, I'm just going to try to do a bird with the wing up this time or his head back preening because I guess if you do the same thing over and over and over again, it gets kind of dull. So they start doing birds in different poses or with their wings out. And people started to take notice that these decoys look better than what I'm using. And they started to have a real market for those decoys. So that turned it from basically something you would use to hunt with into an art form, I believe. That was basically where that started, to turn it into an art form. And now it definitely is an art form. People still take pride, though, in carving their own decoys to hunt with. Of course, you can purchase decoys at any sporting goods store, but the pride of hunting over a rig that you carved yourself and put out there and brought the ducks in just has to give some hunters a great deal of satisfaction, I would believe. I can see where that would be the case. I also love that people would look at it from the standpoint of being individual artists because otherwise you're simply talking about mass production of one or two items or, or a, a small line of items, and that really would violate the spirit of the art itself, it seems. Oh, you're, you're so, so right. If you go and look at some of these uh, auctions that they're having nowadays of decoys from the early part of the 20th century, they can fetch upwards of six figures. That's their, uh, that this past century's folk art, I would have to say. And it's just incredible that some of these birds could get such a high amount of money for them, but, but they do. People really collect them. It's, I think it's just going to be a art form that continues to grow. And 
one of the bigger challenges nowadays is to get younger people involved. And I'm fortunate enough to know, I'm going to throw out a name here if he listens. His name is Ken Humphreys, and he's got his sons carving. Daniel Feathers, this guy really likes decoys. His middle name Feathers, Montano, and his sons are carving and winning junior competitions. So, yeah, they're all coming along, and we are getting new blood into this thing. So I myself have carved three or four. I would not put them on any sort of pedestal to say they're anything great, but it was uh, enjoyable learning how to do it. I'd rather paint flat art, though. Yes, that's right. Well, your photography, your artwork, the animation, you are an extraordinary artist and multifaceted for sure. Given that kind of versatility, you would have an eye for detail. And when I see the word guild, and I'm about to mention a group here, I know that there is a an insistence really on honor and professionalism and a sense of reverence for history, whatever it regards in particular. In this case, the carving of these decoys. There is a group, the Core Sound Decoy Carvers Guild. Imagine that, a decoy carvers guild. When I hear that word guild, Tony, I'm thinking, okay, these people take this seriously and they would insist that anyone associating with them do likewise. That's true. Uh, you, it, there's a membership fee per year. It's not exorbitant. I'd say it's, uh, I believe it's $35 per year. They have a guild building here just off Harker's Island. It was started by six guys who would get together at each other's houses and they would carve on the weekends and when they had free time and they saw that the Ward Museum show was doing very well and there were other shows around and they said, well, why don't we do it? It'd be a good way to sell a few of our decoys and get some money for Christmas. So that's why they decided to do it the first weekend of December every year. And I believe the very first one was in 1982. Um, there are two members surviving of the original six that started it. One of those is Wayne Davis, a good friend of mine who lives here on the island. And you can go over to the Guild Building on Thursday mornings where carvers get together just like the old days, use the materials, use the tools, carve, trade tips. Mostly just, uh, what's a clean way to say this, BS, trash talk. Sure. Chew the fat, when they're over there. give Chew each other a hard time. <laughs> yeah, the breeze. And i got to tell you, when this competition comes up, the... Uh, the trash talking really does start with some of my friends saying, you better not even show up this year because I'm going to whip your butt. <laughs> <laughs> I love so, that. Yeah, I've heard that among railroad railroad model aficionados. They're the same way. It, that's your thing, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, It's a great bunch of guys, and it's just fun to get together with the crew. And, and I'd say more time is spent talking and shooting the breeze than, than carving sometimes. It's just great to get together with them around. Uh, one of my friends has an old pot-bellied stove in a little building he's got out back, and they just, it's like the country store if we want to bring it around full circle. Sitting around the pot-bellied stove and shooting the breeze, only they're carving instead of a whittling a stick, they're whittling a duck. Whittling a duck, and maybe occasionally a smash-mouth game of checkers breaks out. You never know. <laughs> you can't ever tell. <laughs> <laughs> and before we leave this subject, though, I did want to ask you, Tony, among the ones that you've seen, and I'm sure you've seen quite the display, What are which ones stand out the most? You were telling me about one, I, I think somebody put some glowing eyes. It seemed eerie the way you described this one decoy in particular. Oh, that was the guy I mentioned earlier. His name was Daniel Feathers Montano. He lives in San Diego. Uh, 
There used to be a decoy festival in California. There's different flyways, so the decoy festivals kind of are themed around those, too. I don't know if they've continued to. The California one may be done. I think they may have stopped doing that one. But he lives in San Diego, comes over to compete, and he's very experimental. They have a division where you are interpreted. And he carved one year a duck that looked like a Picasso painting. It was all in cubes and put together with the head coming out of the top. And the next year he did one called Flying Into Extinction, which started with a prehistoric duck and trailed back to bird bones coming apart. It was all carved, of course, because he felt that if we don't get youngsters involved in this crap, that it's going to disappear like the way of the dinosaur. And right. this past year he did a wood duck and he decided to electrify it. So it had glowing red eyes. It was one of the more unique things I've seen so far. I mean, and there was another one that was an albatross, but it kind of morphed into an airplane with the wings looked mechanical. So uh, the friend that got me involved is named Patrick Eubanks. He's a world-class decoy carver, and I have several of his in my collection. He's a very talented guy. We've actually traded some of my paintings for some of his decoys. I think it would be a wonderful experience. I absolutely do. And I should put in a word for, and this just appeals to me in particular because it's so evocative of the past and the beginnings of the automotive era. There are many people who love to paint, photograph, and just visit old gas stations, even if those pumps haven't pumped any gas in decades. Oh, yeah, we did that. Uh, we just went on a vacation out west and I made my wife get off the interstate and drive some of Route 66 so we could go to Newberry Springs and take pictures of old gas pumps. <laughs> that is I think that's a great idea. All of itself. It really is. It absolutely is. And it puts you on Route 66. In your estimation, in just a few words, as we're running out of time here, Tony, but there, it's a decommissioned highway, as they call it, Route 66. Mainly still traversable, though. You make sure you have a spare tire, but traveling it is still more adventure than pain. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's always something to see on Route 66 still, and it's not necessarily the things that are left it's the people that are left we stopped in seligman arizona and talked to the son-in-law of juan delgadillo the barber who's still around i was surprised to know he's still with us he's on oh wow he's still there um, wonderful and it's great to just meet all these folks on route 66 they make the drive as they say come alive it is worth the adventure. It really is. There's always that that uh, adventure to inconvenience ratio when you're on a decommissioned highway. But Route 66 still earns the designation of the mother road. Thank goodness. Tony Craig, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Your book again, Country Stores in North Carolina. I will find more topics and we'll do this again, Tony Craig. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so very much. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to American Road Trip Talk once again, along with Thomas and Becky Rep, co-founders of American Road Magazine. We remind you to visit our website, AmericanRoadMagazine.com. Until next week, drive safely and dream well.